Good evening, all of you, and thank you for uh, turning up here on, uh, during exams and uh, reviews and essays time. So I'm really delighted you're here to welcome uh, Dr. Stefan Halper and um, on his talk for his uh, latest book um, on China, on the 21st um, century challenges that face all of us. And um, Dr. Halper has been dealing with China, as we know. It's, um, the book is The Beijing Consensus, How China's Authoritarian Model Will Dominate the 21st Century. My name is Eva Maria Nag, and I'm the executive editor of Global Policy. Um, many of you know it already, and um, this is a new LSE journal. We bring together practitioners and scholars to discuss uh, the most pressing global issues of our time and um, analyze solutions from the private and the public um, sectors. So uh, please do have a look at um, our journal and at the website uh, globalpolicyjournal.com is where exciting things happen. And we're delighted that Dr. Halper has agreed to um, be up on our website in form of a little podcast, uh, which was just filmed. So for those of you who would be interested in following more of um, some of these big themes, uh, please do look us up. Um, a few words of introduction um, for those of you who don't know um, Dr. Halpern. He's a senior research fellow at Magdalen College, Cambridge, and a senior fellow at the Cambridge um, Center for International Studies, where he directs the Donner Atlantic Studies Program um, and lectures on 20th century, latter 20th century US foreign policy, on China, and on contemporary international security issues. Uh, Dr. Halper is also a distinguished fellow at the Nixon Center. He obtained his BA in Stanford and holds doctorates from both Cambridge and Oxford universities. Um, some of you and many of you will know his uh, book, America Alone, The New Conservatives and the Global Order, which came, um, was published in 2004, and The Silence of the Rational Center, Why American Foreign Policy is Failing, published in 2007. Uh, Dr. Halper was the executive editor and host of WorldWise, um, a U.S. nationally televised program on foreign and national security affairs from 1996 to 2000, and This Week from Washington, which was an, uh, a national radio program aired from 1985 to 2001. He has uh, served in four U.S. administrations um, under Nixon, Ford, uh, Reagan, where he was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, and uh, George Bush senior, who, when Dr. Halper was the presidential advisor on national security. I'd like to welcome him warmly at the LSE and indeed um, to this lovely new theatre we have. It's not so new now, but uh, it's new to you, and thank you for coming. Well, thanks very much for all of you for coming. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here back at LSE again, and uh, uh, I think it's probably been two or three years since I've, I've lectured at LSE. Uh, so let me move right into this and um, uh, talk a bit about this book. It's called The Beijing Consensus, and it is a somewhat controversial take on uh, China in the world today and particularly on its relationship to the United States. Why write a book? Well the answer is that there's a point you wish to make 
And in this case, the point is that China is rising more rapidly and in different ways than many of us have thought. While we focus on the economic and the military dimensions of this challenge, a separate, quite serious threat is found in a different dimension. It is ideational. There has emerged a battle of ideas about governance. The Chinese have refined the Asian growth model to develop a fast growth, stable market authoritarian governance that is admired in the world beyond the West, and particularly among third world countries. It promises regime leaders in Africa, Latin America, and elsewhere governance without contentious legislatures or challenging media. And it promises the people employment, housing, and a better future. Crucially, it does not promise an open square or the right of assembly or speech or belief or association. The public is asked to respect the authorities and stay out of politics. The matter becomes more interesting in light of the non-Western views of China's examples. The words envy and admiration come to mind when you speak with leaders in the third world uh, and even in the second world, places like Turkey. Um, with China's rise, what they see is a non-Western country now approaching the pinnacle of global power. Even more, the Bank of China, now six times the size of the World Bank, is financing infrastructure and energy development across Africa, Latin America, and the Near East, including to outlier and pariah states. With these hard currency loans, China in effect provides a path around the West. Here China does not confront the West, but rather makes the West, its standards and its institutions, less relevant. For 30 years, the Chinese have been our economic partners, but they're also our political rivals. Successful market reforms indicate that the Communist Party is not about to crumble, and it's certainly not melting into democracy. What's more, rising China, having survived communism's global demise, has evinced a deliberate self-awareness a powerful new confidence. China will not become a member of the club, as Roosevelt had hoped for Stalin. It marches to its own drummer. The market will not lead to democracy in China. It has chosen a different path in the two decades since the Soviet collapse, neither confronting the US-led system nor conforming to its worldview. What do these trends mean for the idea of the West? What does this mean in the, in the longer term for the primacy, if not the viability, of our values? Freedoms of speech and assembly, transparency, rule of law. And can we expect changes in the values that inform global bodies, such as the UN or the World Court, in the coming decade? In 1938, another uncertain time, 
a diplomat savant, and I'm sure many of you know who I'm thinking of, George Kennan, said, don't ask only how communism has changed Russia, but ask how Russia has changed communism. And so we consider today how China has changed communism. Before addressing these issues, let me say a few brief words about the military and the economic dimensions of the China challenge, and then we'll come back to the main theme. The debate in Washington and in Europe on China's rise focuses on two things. First, it asks if China principally represents a military challenge. Then it asks if economic trends, debt, trade balance, are more important. Some believe these issues are manageable. Others see them as unacceptable threats to global and regional security. So what do we make of China today? The Pentagon estimates that China's total military-related spending in 2008 was about 150 billion US dollars, giving China the second largest defense budget in the world. In 2009, military spending increased by 17.4%. Chinese President Hu Jintao uh, said that China's military priorities were electronic and cyber warfare. That included subsurface warfare, meaning submarine warfare, space-based lasers, warfare in space, and systems that integrate command control, communication, communications, reconnaissance, and intelligence. In the PLA Air Force, we have seen new airborne early warning and control systems that are quite impressive. They employ radar technology one full generation ahead of the US E3C AWACS and the E2C Hawkeye, uh, and Beijing claims to have four of those in the air at the moment. On the ground, uh, the People's Liberation Army is now introducing tactical unmanned aerial vehicles uh, designed to support its ground forces. At sea, American analysts believe China may soon challenge the 7th Fleet in the Western Pacific and the 5th Fleet in the Indian Ocean. And indeed, there's been a bit of paint rubbed off the bows of warships in both places uh, as a result of near collisions. China seeks a zone of control off its east coast to include the Paracels, the Spratleys, and of course Taiwan. And in the Indian Ocean, it is establishing basing facilities, which it calls a string of pearls that run from the Straits of Hormuz uh, to the east to the Sambak and uh, Malaccan Straits. Clearly for Beijing, military modernization is a serious business, and the trends do point to uh, uh, tensions uh, in the Pacific and perhaps beyond, leading some people in Washington to believe that a confrontation is a possibility. Yet, Chinese military development might also be described as a just-in-case capacity designed to puncture the American battle space. We are told China hopes to leapfrog American military hardware with the development of high-tech close-in weapons, 
that target American vulnerabilities, principally U.S. reliance on communications and intelligence technology. Secretary of Defense Gates puts China's military in perspective by saying these developments give cause for concern, but actually not much more than that. Now briefly let me turn to the economic side, which many of you will be familiar with. Aside from the large U.S. debt held by Beijing, there is concern in Washington about the negative trade balance, artificially low value of the yuan, the Chinese currency, cyber theft, dumping, and the effects of China's direct investment in the U.S. That said, China's position as an American creditor is not simple. The large amount of credit Beijing has extended to Washington, in fact, also represents a serious liability for China. A measure of stability is found in what has become a marriage of liabilities, in which China has as much interest in keeping the U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar stable as Americans themselves. The Chinese government buys American debt for the simple reason that this sustains the macroeconomic engine that Beijing relies upon. Chinese investment in American bonds keeps American interest rates low, making credit easier to obtain, and generating a pool of capital for Americans to continue buying consumer goods, Chinese consumer goods. So in this sense, the American consumer is the lifeblood of China's export economy. Further, Beijing buys American assets to maintain the value of the dollar, which in turn protects the value of its own treasury bond holdings. Roughly $820 billion today of China's foreign exchange portfolio is held in such assets, liquid assets, as U.S. Treasury bonds. If the Chinese government allowed uh, the dollar to fall significantly against the yuan, it would wipe out billions of dollars of value in China's coffers. Does Beijing have important leverage in this domain? The answer is yes. But Washington has powerful countervailing leverage that could limit uh, or threaten to limit U.S. direct investment in China or apply high tariffs that would hit China's export sector, casting millions of people out of work and injecting the prospect of chaos into its eastern cities. Moreover, Washington could insist that the yuan be revalued without further delay. On this point, while the Treasury Department has delayed its April 15th report on Chinese currency manipulation, we should all make no mistake, China does manipulate its currency. It effectively exports unemployment, and that has the effect of preventing others around the world from climbing out of the recession as they otherwise might have done. Bottom line, can Beijing harm the U.S. economy and the U.S. consumer? The answer is yes, but not irreparably, and not nearly as much as the U.S. could, if necessary, pressure China. A more serious problem arising from China's ownership of American bonds is how this stable system of mutual dependence 
has weakened America's voice on the global stage. Hillary Clinton in Beijing, you will remember, just after the Obama administration took office, told journalists and officials that pressing China on, quote, other issues like transparency or Tibet and human rights, end quote, must not interfere with addressing the global economic crisis. The same message was conveyed when President Obama visited Beijing and in his low-key, no-TV meeting with the Dalai Lama in Washington last February. Here we see an uncomfortable new reality in the way that Washington has perceived its relationship with Beijing. Economic interdependence has muted America's voice on many of the values and issues that underpin the U.S.-led liberal order, such as progress on human rights, minority rights, rule of law, free speech. Moreover, certain broad assumptions made by various American administrations over the past two decades about China are proving to be wrong. Contrary to the soothing phrase advanced by World Bank President Robert Zellick that China is becoming, quote, a stakeholder in the global community, the reality is more complex. China has indeed been helpful on a range of matters, and we all know what they are. The North Korean nuclear program, uh, they've been very helpful on that. They've helped on piracy in the Gulf. Uh, they've provided UN peacekeepers in many places. But be aware, a smiling Dr. Jekyll is followed by the iniquitous Mr. Hyde. And I'll tell you why. The, the answer is that certain requirements that China has make it impossible for China to embrace Western norms in its dealings with the resource-rich developing world. The problem is rooted in what has been called China's growth trap. China has to grow at 8%, which is the minimum required to ensure stability and provide jobs and housing to recent university graduates and to the rural millions flooding into the coastal cities each month. Failure to achieve this growth rate carries the very real risk of chaos which is a nightmare in a country of 1.3 billion people. To grow, <clears throat> China must find secure, steady, long-term sources of energy, copper, iron, zinc, cobalt, and timber. A latecomer to these markets and spurred by unprecedented demand, China must offer better terms than the established players which it does in several ways. First, Beijing uses its massive $2.4 trillion of hard currency reserves to provide low or no interest long-term loans or grants to uh, resource-rich governments. China can affect these transactions in three months, while it could take the World Bank as much as five years. It normally commits to road and rail construction, to move resources to a port. It agrees to build schools and hospitals that otherwise would not be built. And it makes large private payments to chiefs of state to be sure that everything goes smoothly. 
Most importantly, China pledges non-interference in the internal affairs of these nations. It is not concerned with good governance issues, not concerned with rule of law, transparency, or environmental issues, or labor conditions, or the lack or presence of an open public square. China is concerned about one thing, extracting the resource contracted for in an efficient and timely way. China is not concerned here with Western ethics and norms. It must have the resources needed to grow at 8% to remain stable. Because ensuring stability is a survival issue for the party, China will not become a stakeholder in the norms and ethics of the global community. Over time, the effect of this embrace is to marginalize the principles and values informing Western progress. China is quietly remaking the landscape of international development, economics, community, and by extension politics. And in so doing, it is, it is, do, is in doing this, uh, it is uh, progressively limiting the projection of Western influence beyond the NATO bloc. This process is most pronounced in the third world, but second world nations like Egypt, Indonesia, Iran, and perhaps Brazil have great regional influence. I call them pivot powers. And they're also adopting elements of China's example. In people terms, it means that for those ruled by governments that admire or seek to replicate China's market authoritarian example, the prospects of experiencing democratic civil society are remote, perhaps non-existent. China is in effect a catalyst in chief for a profound and far-reaching process. Just as globalization is shrinking the world, so China may be thought to be shrinking the West. <clears throat> now, let me make a comment on a dog that didn't bark. Some 20 years ago, in 1989, Francis Fukuyama told us we entered a new era embracing the Western model of free market democracy. But it failed to materialize. Instead, new ideas about capitalism brought wealth without democracy. Put simply, Many leaders in the world beyond the West are replacing the free market democratic model with a capitalism that opens the economy to investment and market development and allows the ruling party to control government, courts, the military, and information. Moreover, though emerging markets have gained wealth as they've integrated with the world economy, this has not meant greater integration with the West. In fact, emerging markets are increasingly turning to each other uh, for business. These developments, new centers of economic autonomy beyond the West, and the growing appeal of illiberal capitalism are the dual engines for the diffusion of power away from the West. When added to Beijing's continuing currency manipulation, they are the key force multipliers in the global rise of China. 
<clears throat> of course, much of China's progress is a function of the failure of the Washington Consensus. In the late 80s and early 90s, we had a process which simply didn't work. It was a one-size-fits-all proposal made by the World Bank and the IMF, uh, two countries that were attempting uh, to, to modernize in the third world. It didn't work. Countries across Africa and Latin America were actually worse off for following the World Bank and the IMF prescriptions. Lax oversight, poor management, left many of these countries with stagnant literacy rates, high infant mortality, job loss, and declines in per capita income. As dissolution rose, the door was left open for China to gain traction using policies that adroitly combined two things, the timely provision of hard currency support and a promise of non-interference in internal affairs. China, in effect, provided an exit option for third world governments seeking loans and relief from World Bank and IMF moralizing and hectoring demands for government reform. And China has benefited greatly from this. China has built on these commercial relationships to exert political leverage in international bodies, creating a group of grateful and compliant acolytes, but not in the Cold War sense. There is no voting bloc within the UN or other global institutions that takes daily instructions from a bloc leader, although Beijing does expect support on Taiwan, Tibet, uh, sovereignty questions, and human rights issues. Rather, what we're seeing is nations loosely connected by an admiration for China, a desire to capture the power of international markets, and an equal desire to remain autonomous from Western concepts of global culture and liberal development economics. While there is no Chinese model per se, and indeed Beijing is recently sensitive to that term and now prefers to use the word case, there is a complex set of developments and reforms in China over the last 30 years that owe their success to China's unique culture, demography, geography, and governing philosophy. In this sense, there's no model to speak of that can be replicated or exported to places like Latin America or Sub-Saharan Africa. But in ideational terms, China is exporting something simpler and indeed more corrosive to Western preeminence. And this is the basic idea of market authoritarianism. Beyond everything else that China sells to the world, it functions as the world's largest billboard for the new alternative of going capitalist and staying autocratic. Thus, Beijing provides a compelling high-speed demonstration of how to liberalize economically without surrendering to liberal politics. So you're probably saying, if it's all so clear, why has the West been so stagnant, been unable to respond to this, what's happened in Washington. <clears throat> well, while 
China has, with some, some exceptions, coordinated its policies towards the United States through Prime Minister Wen Jiabao's office. There is no mechanism representing a distilled U.S. national interest that can be found in Washington, nor is there one in Europe. Instead, China policy in the U.S. is hostage to Washington's designated China gangs, where we find a clash of panda huggers and panda bashers. That may be a bit simplistic, but it's generally, it generally works. Former Defense Secretary James Schlesinger makes the point that the American-China debate is globulated. He likes that word and divided into separate lobbies and single-issue interest groups. What are those groups that are promoting their own China policies? Well, business interests, for example, like the U.S.-China Business Council, emphasize China's contribution to global progress, its importance for U.S. economic growth, commercial opportunities, and so on. Then there are the human rights people, who talk about China's brutal policies towards its minorities, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the Falun Gong, the other dissidents who have harsh sentences and so on. Then there are the environmentalists who are upset that China in 2008 became the number one polluter on earth. And then there's defense and security people who are concerned about China's military modernization. And finally, there is the labor community, worried about working conditions and job loss due to China's low wages. This menagerie of competing groups and interests is frankly a luxury none of us can afford any longer. Instead, to address the new China that I've described today, Washington has to consider a redefinition of the China challenge and a fresh look at China policy. A reorganization is needed that brings the range of China-related issues under one roof uh, somewhere in the executive office. And that would be everything from currency to human rights to trade to military issues uh, to these rising ideational questions I've mentioned. Allow me to remind you that a half century ago, Roosevelt, who was thought, quote, endlessly clever but ultimately unwise, end quote, tried to gain clarity in a very murky moment. Roosevelt wanted to believe the Soviets would become more like us. For the Brits and the French, the words calculated accommodation were the order of the day. George Kennan believed something else. He saw a different pattern. His Moscow experience told him the Soviet nationalism needed an adversary, that the Soviets could not, as it were, be housebroken, that Soviet communism could not both embrace liberal internationalism and survive, and that indeed the prospect of common progress was of another time and place. And he, together with Chip Boland and eventually Harriman and then Nitsa, took the view that the Soviet challenge was strategic, unmitigated, and that it had to be met. And here we have another murky moment. China arrived in Washington a month ago with a soothing scenario, including a willingness, expressed willingness, not to veto UN sanctions on Iran. There's been little progress on that. 
and a sotto voce whisper that the value of the yuan would be allowed to rise a little. So indeed, China's challenge is subtle. Unlike the Soviets, China does not wish to destroy uh, us or the West. China does not wish to disrupt the relationship and fears it may have overstepped a bit, actually, in recent weeks with Google and Taiwan and Dalai Lama. We are, after all, the lifeblood of the Chinese economy. Today, the battle space seems to be one of ideas, not yet territory. South China Sea, Indian border, ocean bed mineral rights, and so on, does not seem to be the principal point of challenge. But we are looking at a building authoritarian challenge arising from a fresh type of corporate state that has to be properly defined. What's ahead? <clears throat> Cheng Li of the Brookings Institution in Washington says, China now wants a seat at the head of the table. Its leaders expect to be among the key architects of global institutions. China has worldwide clout, and public opinion at home is increasingly combative, sometimes jingoistic. So with one eye on China's interests and the other on domestic politics, uh, who accuse China's leaders of coddling the West, Beijing has begun to push harder to reshape the international system to make it more China-friendly. We see this in China's efforts to redesign the web. China is working on the next generation of internet standards, what's called IPv6, for Internet Protocol version 6. The current version, which has one internet address per 100 people in China, has five addresses for each American. Um, and as this is redesigned and trillions of new internet addresses are created, China wants a full role in that process. And it should have that. We can expect a major Chinese initiative in space, not just tests of anti-satellite weapons, but a full-up moon program le leading to a landing in uh, uh, 2013. The objective? Potential energy sources like helium-3, technical spin-offs as well as minerals needed to sustain economic expansion. In closing, <clears throat> let me reiterate this challenge very quickly. Negative trade balance that has grown in 2003 from 43 billion to 450 billion in 2010 and has delivered 2.4 trillion in hard currency reserves to China. A currency undervalued by something like 20 to 40 percent according to many economists, most economists, which is the instrument of a beggar thy neighbor policy that continues to hold global economies in a recessionary grip or it doesn't let them get out as they otherwise would. A dramatic military buildup with an increase of 17.4% this year. A $6.6 billion global media program to tell China's story in 56 languages and the near total support of the 53 African nations plus many in Latin America and other parts of Asia, which is often used to thwart Western initiatives uh, in the UN 
and other international agencies. Most important is the ideational challenge, a market authoritarian form of governance, hugely popular in the third world, that has dismissed democracy often as plutocracy, criticizes our economy's inability to regulate excess and restore jobs while asserting the superiority of China's authoritarian example. All said, I close with a point that I'm not pessimistic. This is not a fire bell in the night, but it is a warning. Our interests, not to say our viability, are in play. China's ideational challenge does not proceed in a vacuum. Rather, it informs a new generation of leaders beyond the West, international organizations, and global strategists, such that its success will diminish the principles upon which our global standing now rests. We may be content with that, or perhaps not. How we address this challenge will answer that question. And I thank you. I'm happy to take a few questions, I'm yes, sure. We, we do have time. Um, I'm, I'm going to regulate a little bit here, I'm afraid. Um, if I can take questions in clusters of threes, that'd be great. We, we do have until 8 o'clock, um, so I hope um, after Stefan's uh, thought-provoking and provocative talk, there'll be questions. I see one um, and two and a third at the back, so if I start here with you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much. I'll take my threes, that all right. Thank you. Uh, my question, you're mentioning, mentioning uh, Chinese military spending in sort of uh, inflammatory you know, terms. What would it be relative to U.S. spending? So the 17% increase you, you bandy about, what would that look like I mean, compared to U.S. total spending and the U.S. increase on an annual basis? Uh, and then secondary, I mean, the second issue is you talk about the West uh, sometimes it's, that means the United States, sometimes that means Europe. Uh, there seems to be a different approach in, uh, in continental Europe to China policy than in the U.S., so I think there's a problem discussing the West as one place. Uh, and finally, you, this claim that China is the largest polluter in the world on a per capita basis, Canadians, where I'm from, are much worse polluters than the Chinese. So using numbers like that uh, is a bit misrepresentative. Uh, and finally, uh, for uh, Dr. Nag, does global policy support sort of war, uh, fear-mongering scholarship, or I mean, of this kind? Is this what the journal is about? Or, yeah. This uh, is. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. This, we have we have lots of room for all kinds of opinion. Uh, I'm not sure that you know. I, I've just had a, a tour in the U.S. Um, I had 58 radio interviews, 14 states, 22 events, and we've had great reviews in the New York Times, The Economist, the FT, and so on. But that is the first time that this has been described as fear-mongering. What I'm trying to talk about are trends which are very clear to me and a, and a fairly large body of scholars. And this journal is, is, is certainly welcome to include these views along with any others without criticism of that kind. Now to your questions. U.S. military spending is 4.5 times as, as large 
as Chinese military spending. The rate of increase in China at 17.4% is three times larger or faster than U.S. rate of growth. On your question of the U.S. and the West, you're quite right about this. My comments are directed essentially towards American audiences, but there are these trends affect all of us, and as Europe begins to come to grips with China's predatory and mercantile economic practices, I guarantee you that this will rise as a major issue uh, in British and continental discussion. Now, as far as 2008 is concerned, I'm sorry about Canada being the largest polluter or whatever it is from a uh, population point of view. This is a number which is based on total carbon emissions. Uh, and that's where that rests. Right. Next question. Um, I'd, I'd like to, since you addressed me directly, um, global policy is, reflects the ethos of the LSE, which is uh, we like pluralist thinking. We like to engage with a various number of perspectives and uh, thinkers. So I've been here at this institution for too many years and uh, not to sort of respond to this. Um, and I've always loved the LSE for being open um, to, uh, to anything and everything, to be able to discuss issues from, um, from the left, from the right, from the center. And uh, I hope global policy will reflect that. So that's just an answer to that. Thank you. Thank I'll carry on. Uh, Stefan would like to take answers, uh, questions in ones. So I'll, I'll just take one more, and then I do remember you up there. Yes. Just on the market authoritarian model, yes. so, so after a couple of hundred years, you could argue that the mixed economy model has got good, good theories in terms of both political theory and economics about the way the model works and its possible connections to consumer and citizen welfare. I was wondering, is there a developing literature either in China or elsewhere that actually defines the market authoritarian model, yeah. the way it works in more of a normative sense, so we can sort of see how well that might work versus the, the mixed economy model? This is an excellent question. Um, there is actually a literature, and it's quite extensive, but the uh, thing that's peculiar about it is that people refer to this market authority, I call it market authoritarian. Other people call it um, state capitalism. Others look at it as a kind of corporate statism. Uh, others see it as an outgrowth of the original Japanese initiative in Manchukuo in the 1930s, where there was created an Asian model, then picked up by the Koreans, the Taiwanese, Singapore, and refined by the Chinese. So there is actually quite a literature on this, but it arrives in different guises. Now, the, the other point that's important here is that this is not a model forever and for always. It is, it seems to be, a model that is particularly useful at a certain stage of development. Um, you can look at some of the third world literature and see leaders pointing out how difficult it would be to conduct democratic elections and still make decisions that promoted national growth. I mean, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult because of the lack of a democratic civil, civil culture. So there is a measure of authoritarianism, 
which for a period of time can be very useful. Point I'm making is that as China expands its commercial relationships through the provision of these very attractive loans, there come a set of political and cultural and civic um, qualities. And those mitigate against the development of pluralism and democratic types of government. Uh, so that, uh, and, and it's not just China, by the way. I mean, you can see this sort of authoritarian trend in a number of other places, including Russia and perhaps even, well, certainly Venezuela, but maybe even Brazil. Thank you. There's a gentleman at the top there, white shirt. Um, Hi there, thank you for a very informative talk. Um, could, could you just introduce yourself? Oh, sorry, sorry I should have uh, James mentioned Owen. this earlier. And where you are um, Ministry of Justice. Okay. Um, I just wanted to ask whether you thought it was a matter of, matter of time is we still too early on to expect China to have initiated these democratic processes? Mm. It's still poor. And this, this goes around globally, you know, the end of history, you know, not here yet, fair enough, but is it just a matter of time, basically? That's it. Um, I think that uh, it, 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 for, for 30 years or even longer, certainly since Nixon opened China to the West in 1972, there has been a, a storyline advanced by uh, Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, a variety of other American China experts and foreign policy luminaries that said, with the market, there will come democracy. Don't worry about it. It necessarily has to happen. Why? Because markets create wealth. Wealth create interest groups. Interest groups create political factions, and those become political parties. In the case of China, they've interrupted that process at the point at which uh, interest groups are tending towards political activity. And they've been very successful in doing that. China has a uh, security structure which is which exists in three tiers and it's extremely efficient so to say it's too early is to say well we've looked at it for 30 years we don't see a lot of change here it could happen um, and it may happen but at this point people are looking at China as a third world country which has achieved remarkable growth maintained stability, taken millions of, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And so it's an example of what you can, in theory, do. And yet, it mitigates against the values and principles that underpin our political culture. And so it's worth being aware of that discontinuity in our interests. Uh, good evening. Thank you for your talk. My name is Colin Leith. Um, um, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I'm Colin, I just came off the street. I'm not a member of the LSE. Um, <laughs> when you talked about um, our political values, 
when we were at the same stage of China, say in the 19th century, when France, Germany were at the same stage, we didn't have political freedoms. Um, so maybe Kissinger was right that they will catch up. Uh, you're, of course, absolutely correct. Um, not only did we not have political freedoms at this somewhat early stage of development, but um, um, a century or so ago when Europe was deeply involved in Africa and Latin America, uh, our economic processes were uh, probably could be defined as being mercantile and not all that different from what China's doing today. The difference is that this is now and that was then. And what we now understand in terms of a global polit uh, civil culture is that these developing societies uh, have aspirations which are often pluralist and democratic and we're simply saying that under this given these trends and under these arrangements they won't be able to realize them. Uh, back to your basic point about China um, going through a phase as it were <clears throat> it's um, um, as, I, as I said to the previous question, it is, you know, you know certainly the, the jury remains out, but the, but the indications are not terribly good. The efficiency with which China is able to close down internet and other expressions of democratic aspiration, the efficiency is, is chilling. Um, Daya, are you the gentleman in the middle? Sorry. Right in the middle. Thank you. I'm Daya Tussu from University of Westminster. Um, I was intrigued by your use of third and second world. Ah, yeah. um, I thought was a, that was a bit dated, to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, my I'm an old guy. I'm uh, not that young myself, but sort of, you know, things move on. No, well, well, you know, on. I'm getting to be 65. Uh, um, <laughs> my question is about um, how does this I wouldn't use the word scaremongering, but your, your analysis um, fit with what else is happening in Asia. For example, rise of other Asian countries, democratic countries like India. How does that fit in your analysis? Well, we're very pleased, uh, obviously. Uh, everyone's very excited about India's progress. And uh, India uh, is growing at, what, 7.5%. Uh, and has one of the most complex and varied democracies, certainly the largest uh, on this earth. Uh, so how does it fit with India? It, it runs parallel to India. Uh, China and India have, for the most part, a workable relationship. I've just come from India not long ago. There are, as you know, or may know, severe tensions on the northern border with China. Um, and these go back to 1913, similar courts and disagreements that uh, derive from those. But um, uh, when you ask about other Asian nations, if you were, for example, to ask about China's influence in Myanmar, or China's influence, uh, that is to say, that how the China example was reflected in Vietnam, or um, other parts of the region, 
you would have to admit that China's authoritarian qualities are broadly reflected in Southeast Asia and certainly in other parts of the region. Now, China has regional interests. It's actually expanding the use of the yuan for cross-border currency transactions. It's attempting in this way to begin to introduce the yuan and possibly to allow it to, in a limited regional way, to begin to float, which would increase its value. But I think that it's pretty clear that China has a very large impact in the region, and it is, for the most part, a commercial impact. It's a light touch politically, although the example of China's success is something that none of the regional powers can ignore. Yes, China is better in gender equality, so lady first here, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Vino. I'm from SOAS. Let me truly scaremonger for a second here. I know you said that there's hope for that you're not unoptimistic about the future, having stated what you did about China. If I take the worst-case scenario, which is that China is pushing a market authoritarian model that doesn't have room for democracy, liberalizing the economy but being quite harsh on political rights, what is it that the Western-led liberal order can do about it? Well, this is a question which, of course, everybody asks, and it is a very legitimate question. My hope is that we can find ways of drawing China into cooperative initiatives, that is to say, initiatives which would be regarded as positive by most of the world. For example, agreements on environmental pollution questions, and obviously the events in Copenhagen were a disaster from almost every perspective. But we now learn that the Chinese were difficult in those meetings because they were afraid of being drawn into an agreement which they hadn't prepared for and didn't understand. And it also turns out that Wen Jiabao avoided the meeting in Copenhagen because he didn't have authority to make decisions. That's why he sent a number two. So the whole thing kind of went off the rails. But the point is that there are things to be done on environmental issues, and China is a major player on those questions. So if we can see initiatives that draw China into a multidimensional discussion on these things, that can't hurt. Secondly, if you can look at the disputes related to minerals, gas, and oil deposits under the sea, in the seabed, these are issues that extend all the way from the gates of, from the Gulf of Hormuz, all the way around through the Sambok and Malaccan Straits up to Japan, the Sea of Japan. It would be excellent to find some kind of protocol which avoided conflict there. Third thing is to involve China in discussions that relate to the Paracels, the Spratleys, Mischief Rock, a variety of places where there are multiple territorial claims. 
this is not something that should be allowed to simply go on because it will lead to conflict. And we've seen two Chinese naval armadas move north of Okinawa and south of Japan, which have drawn a Japanese reaction, one on April 1st and the second on April 10th. So you've got things out there that could draw multilateral initiatives, and China could be part of those. By the same token, it is important that we draw the line on currency manipulation. The yuan is undervalued. It does misposition certainly American and European producers. There is no reason why this kind of manipulation of currency should be embraced or tolerated for any longer. So it's a combination of carrots and sticks. One does not go to battle stations. One is not looking for a conflict. But one does want to see if there aren't ways that this rising power can be managed in ways other than Wilhelmine Germany was managed. Hi, my name is Jesse. I'm a second-year international history student at the LSE. I was wondering, given the Communist Party's more or less airtight control over political discourse and its ability to, in fact, manipulate and channel that discourse, is there a danger that in order to deflect criticism from its handling of China's internal policies, it will attempt to steer that discourse in a nationalistic or even jingoistic direction against the West? Good question. And, in fact, this is a very relevant question because we have actually seen when there's been an economic slowdown in Guangdong province, the specter of Japanese militarism seems to flow into the media. And you do have demonstrations in the streets in front of the Japanese embassy, which normally last about two days because they don't, on the third day, people tend to turn against the local authorities. There are a few bugaboos that the party uses. One is Japanese militarism. Another is American hegemony. A third is the question of Taiwan and interference with cross-straits relations by Western powers. A fourth is the question of Tibet or the Uyghurs. China will tolerate no interference on these supposedly internal, in fact, internal matters. And China also uses these kinds of emotional symbols and images when it seems to be pressured on nonproliferation or Iran or things like that. So, yeah, they do. They trot it right out. It's a very efficient machine. And when there were loud and vociferous objections to the Dalai Lama meeting with the president at the White House, when they had such loud objections to the Taiwan arms package, and people have gotten to the point of sort of ignoring that. 
I mean, it's it's a regular occurrence. Michael Morgan, uh, graduated from SOAS a long time ago. Could you speak up a little bit? Michael Morgan, graduated from SOAS a long time ago and uh, lived in China for uh, approximately 10 years. Um, first, I'd like to say that uh, I found your uh, talk refreshing. Um, Thank you. It's, uh, it's uh, refreshing to hear somebody uh, with such an accurate, as far as I'm concerned, analysis of, of uh, of China and its uh, pla place in place in the uh, in the world today. Um, secondly, um, I'd like to turn the question that this uh, other SOAS uh, individual um, asked on on its head. Um, what can the CCP or Be Beijing do about this? Are they not? Isn't is their current trajectory um, not? Um, is it not inevitable? Is it they're under pressure domestically um, to maintain social stability? Yeah. And is, that, is that not uh, does, does that not mean that their traje trajectory is inevitable? And yes, their interests, as they grow um, economically, will inevitably um, clash with those of the West. Um, again, what would you what would you suggest Beijing does about it? Well, Beijing isn't a very. The question is, what would um, uh, one suggests that the um, uh, party and Beijing do, given uh, the tra trajectory of their development and their uh, needs for resources and so on. Um, the answer to this is that China is in a very difficult spot. It's walking a very narrow line. Uh, it has to acquire the resources to feed the beast. It's got to keep people employed, keep them in houses, and keep them thinking that next year will be better than this year. That's not easy. We look at this country and we say, my goodness, it's got 1.3 billion people. It's huge. But its leaders look at the country and say, we need to produce 1.3 billion you know, housing for 1.3 billion people, jobs, hope, infrastructure, schools, health, everything else. And that is a daunting task. So China is locked into a growth trap. It has to keep growing in order to satisfy the, the ongoing growth of its own requirements. Now, in this kind of situation, you inevitably have lots of complaints. Uh, you see it on the internet. Uh, and so China has developed a capacity to blur or divert these complaints so they don't translate to politically viable alternatives to the regime. That's a whole separate process, but it has to do with the development and maintenance of an extremely sophisticated security apparatus. China uh, has also got to deal with the problem of, let me back up and say, this is a society that looks like a donut. It has a great big hole in the middle. The hole is where communist ideology used to be. 
It's not there anymore. So what is the social adhesive? How does this place hold itself together? And the answer is that it holds itself together by a combination of nationalism, <clears throat> a sense of China rising, which is not quite nationalism, but pride in China, uh, a sense of material well-being, uh, a sense of momentum. Those are pretty mushy concepts to build a national identity. So this is a country struggling for a national identity and struggling for stability. And when you ask about trajectory, they're trying to maintain all of that while at the same time running up against the West on these resource issues, which, <clears throat> which people like me are, I guess, bringing to a head. Um, actually, I'm going to use my privileged position here to just jump in on that point, if you don't mind, and just ask two questions of my own before I move back to you. Um, this is directly related to the values um, idea, and I'm wondering whether or not we're dealing with commensurable um, terms um, using Western values on the one hand to describe what China's pitted against, and, and the other seems to be a hallmarks of a political system rather than values. Um, so this is really about the commensurability of, of concepts, uh, because in, China, in, in discourse um, analysis, probably the values you would hear stated there would be well, harmony, balance, um, uh, the interest um, of society in balance with the interest of individuals, um, whereas what you stated would be, would be considered to be goals or aims of a polity. And to me, those are slightly different things. And, and added to the component would be the idea of um, values, political systems, and ethical behavior of states. So that's a third component, which I'm not sure where that would fit in. Um, also, intriguingly, I ha you haven't really spoken much about communism as, as a um, fundamental and foundational value. And I kept wondering what um, Mao or Lenin would have made of um, this analysis. Um, so Rolling in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think what you're asking is a, is a separate essay, and I, I agree with you that there are certainly large differences between uh, individual uh, values and ethics and societal objectives. Uh, it is very hard to reconcile these. But let me just focus on your last question. Communism... Um, actually has, I mean, it's, it is really seen its last. It's on its way out. Um, even Kim Jong-il and uh, uh, the Castro brothers would have to say, this is, this is yesterday's melody. Uh, it, the, the Communist Party is in business to remain in business. It is in the business of sustaining itself, uh, its relationships, its access, its control. Um, and it doesn't even talk about Marxist-Leninism, Marxist-Leninist theory anymore when you're in China. What you do here is a fair discussion, which is sort of a, an easygoing socialism, is the way I'd put it, 
uh, a concern about a social safety net, in wanting to make health services more efficient, uh, increasing the standards for education and so on, um, but not a dialectic, not a theory of state that rests on some compelling Marxist-Leninist dialectic. I don't think Mao Zedong would recognize the country today. And certainly uh, the transitional figures like Deng Xiaoping, who was the iron hand behind Tiananmen, but was also the man who took the trip south to begin this exploration of the market, he might not even recognize the country today. It's a very dynamic place, uh, but in some ways, as I've tried to explain, it's a place that causes some concern as well. You could also say this is the last stage before communism when all the contradictions come together better. That, that is a separate essay. Um, should we carry on? I see a gentleman here in a blue, light blue shirt. Um, halfway up. Uh, hello, my name is Richard. I did a master's here many years ago. Thank you very much for your, your, your talk. Um, you mentioned it briefly. What about Japan? Where does Japan figure in this? Um, the US is the largest economy in the world. I think Japan is still number two. I was in Japan last year and I know they've got their issues with their relations with the US, military, historic. China, Japan have a, you know, a terrible history. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Japan? How does it shake out? Is well, it's interesting you ask. Um, I have been an advisor to the Japanese government for the last 25 years. And uh, their uh, concerns are, are really um, very consistent. Uh, they worry about China's military uh, growth. They worry about China's territorial claims, particularly to mineral and gas deposits under the Sea of Japan. Um, they feel the Chinese will never let go of the second war and using Japan as, as we were saying a moment ago, as a symbol uh, to mobilize nationalist sentiment. Um, Japan has been dining out for rather a long time on the U.S. security relationship. Um, it has not had to make the investments in a robust military force that many other countries have. Of course, it's also limited by Article 9 of its constitution to a 1% of GDP expenditure for military and so the Japanese defense force is highly technical, very capable, but not very large. Um, I, I think you'd have to say that in the past year uh, because of the Okinawa uh, tensions that Japan, the new government in Japan, the LDP is now out as you know, um, Probably there has been a slight cooling off of the U.S.-Japan relationship and an inclination to see if there isn't a way forward with Beijing. It's not an entirely bad thing to see. By the same token, it's important to see new relationships between Japan and India and Australia. Now, Chinese will say, well, these people are trying to contain us. This is a new containment policy. And if you talk to the Japanese defense people or the Indian military, they will say, actually not. What we're trying to do is remind the Chinese 
that you've got to keep the sea lines of communication open, that you cannot make economic or territorial claims in the South China Sea, which effectively close that sea to commercial traffic. So Japan is part of a regional effort, I suppose you could say, to somewhat to balance China, but on the other hand, they are seeking better relations with China. Uh, good evening, Scott Brown from the University of Glasgow. Um, I was just wondering, to what extent do you think the security community in the US, particularly the Pentagon, has been guilty of interpreting China's attempt to acquire certain capabilities um, and increase spending as indicative of threatening intentions towards either the US or regionally? And also, if China continues along this pattern of military development, what the implications will be for regional security and stability? Um, on your last point, if China continues along, these along this path and these expenditures or capabilities are not matched by uh, other countries in the region, you could, uh, you could see an imbalance and that would lead to inevitably uh, assertions of control over certain disputed territories which would in turn lead to confrontation. So the U.S. presence in the Western Pacific is vitally important to all of these countries, including China. Now, as far as interpreting the Chinese budget as somehow uh, being threatening or offensive, it's a very simple question. You're going to increase your military by 17.4% in one year. What, where's the enemy? Who is it? You know, is it Taiwan? I don't think so. Philippines? Probably not. So who is it? It's going to be the United States. It's got to be. That's why you put space mines next to American communications satellites. That's why you create missile platforms on the seabed. That's why you purchase uh, a new aircraft carrier or kilo-class silent running diesel submarines. There's reason for it. Now, it's not as if it creates great uh, number of sleepless nights in Washington, but it is something to be aware of. Hi, my name is Ivan Kurnow. I have some business interest in Asia. Um, you mentioned that U.S. policy has to deal with a number of competing voices. You have the businessman, you have the environmentalist, human rights, and so forth. Um, do you find that the strategic and economic dialogue which has been instituted is the right channel to discuss all this, or does there need to be a better policy or better system to, to deal with all these issues, number one? And number two, uh, when Obama does meet with the uh, government in a few weeks' time, what should be the number one issue on their list of topics? Um, on the question of competing voices, uh, we really have uh, a cacophony. Uh, we have everyone with an interest asserting his own priorities. Uh, and that means that the one priority which is not clearly asserted is the U.S. national interest. And I think that probably 
uh, it's all right to have the strategic dialogue, which uh, is a top-level conversation among non-government people, uh, for the most part. Um, but we we uh, we need to bring all of this under one roof because the Chinese are able to rifle shot the U.S. position. They can focus everything on one issue, and and cr for example on the question of the uh, currency manipulation. They can avoid pressure on that by promising to move on the UN Security Council resolution regarding the Iranian nuclear program. Or they can offer to move on a dumping question regarding steel wire or tires instead of dealing with the currency question. I don't like to see a real priority like currency manipulation set to the side or, or, or diffused or blurred within other issues. When Obama meets with the Chinese, he has to make it absolutely clear that we will not tolerate this continued manipulation of currency because it is slowing our emergence from the recession along with many other countries. China continues under a presentation which says, hey, we're a third world country. We don't have the kind of uh, sophisticated infrastructure that you've got. We've got all these people who are impoverished. The part of the conversation that's left out is that China also has hard currency reserves of $2.4 trillion and is making money every day from an, un from an uneven playing field. So I think that that's what Obama needs to focus on. And he needs to bring uh, his military, commercial, and broader strategic interests on, in, into one room and say, okay, what are our, our priorities right now? And what should we be saying to the Chinese instead of allowing this back and forth on multiple dimensions? And I, you know, I appreciate you're doing business in, in China. Um, it's not... I was surprised, frankly, that the administration wasn't more supportive of Google, uh, given their difficulties. And I think there's going to be more problems of that kind going forward for the business community. Any further questions, uh, lady in the Hi, um, my name is Rose. I'm not a student here. Um, do you think it's possible that China's um, influence could have any positive effects? Um, yes, uh, I do. I think that um, um, China is an example of a third world country that has done very well and uh, in some circumstances has been able to show the way forward for countries which uh, really have no prospect of, of either acquiring hard currency or management or any sort of support for their immediate problems. Um, so in, in, in some respects, I think China can be certainly uh, helpful. China is a force, at least at the moment, more or less for stability in its region. Provided China does not make 
territorial claims which are uh, unacceptable. And provided China finds a way to deal with its minorities, which, are, uh, which offer them opportunity and a voice in their own cultures, like Tibetans and the Uyghurs, um, you know, China can play a, a, a stabilizing role. That's what they hope to do. Um, I have raised questions about how possible, how, how reasonable that is to, to anticipate given their needs for resources and so on. Are there any further questions? Um, Stefan's been very patient. There's one, we don't want to tax you too much, but should we'll, we take, we'll take one, one, more. Two, one more and Perugini Cristiano from uh, University of Perugia, Italy. Uh, University of Perugia, Italy. Perugia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, my question is: uh, Is the current uh, crisis affecting the political situation in China in in any respect? In the sense that, uh, does it make uh, sense to you the contention that? This is the, this failure, this perceived failure of Western financial capitalism, is supporting the regime in uh, this authoritarian challenge in justif justifying this uh, approach to market economy. Um, the question is: Does the uh, perceived failure of the Western economic structure? Um, uh, suggest that the China's authoritarian regime um, is, is, is handling its finances better. Is that, is that what you're asking? Is it helping the regime? Help, yeah. Um, the Chinese have not been very gracious about the recession. The uh, chairman of the Bank of China arrived in London um, in uh, the beginning of 2009 and made a press conference at which he said to the British uh, and to others who were here for the G20, now the teachers have problems. You know, now you, you guys who set the rules and, and, and run the system, you've got problems. Um, and I think that uh, certainly China has not been enormously helpful by virtue of the currency issue uh, in assisting uh, the rest of those impacted by the recession to, to, to climb out of it. Now what we see in the last month is that the U.S. economy is coming on very strong, strongly. U.S. economy had 4.8% growth in the last quarter. It added 290,000 jobs last month. And the Chinese economy uh, is in a downturn. So there are no eternal verities. There are cycles. And it looks as if we're moving out of the recession. Uh, I'm frankly very proud of the reaction in Washington to what has happened in Wall Street. You have a criminal investigation underway about what Goldman Sachs may or may not have done. Who knows what the truth is? We'll find it out. But there's both a civil action and a criminal action in order to make these rules uh, and uh, regulations more transparent and to re 
return confidence to the equity markets. That's the proper reaction. That is what we ought to be doing. Uh, we need to ensure that people are confident about the market. It shows that the U.S. and broadly speaking, Western capitalist market economies are able to regulate themselves and, and respond. Obviously, Europe is having a little more trouble with this, uh, with the euro and Mr. Trichet, but I won't go into that. <laughs> Thank you all Thank very you. much. Thank you. <laughs>